There's a lot to break down in Wakanda forever. The arc of old hands like Nakia and Okoye, and newer additions like Namor and Riri Williams. The way co-writers Ryan Coogler and Joe Robert Cole forge an adventure epic from the awe of genocide and enslavement. The mother-daughter story between Shuri and Queen Ramonda. But what made the set of Wakanda forever different was that it wasn't just a set. It was a wake. It was a repass. It was therapy. Maybe there's another big-budget sequel where the lead actor died so close to production, but I can't think of one. In our first episode, we talked to director Ryan Coogler about how he personally bore that weight. On this episode, we're going to expand that conversation in hopes of understanding the ways in which a fictive mythical grief came to be informed by a very real one. We'll learn how Wakanda and Telecom were built by talking to production designer Hannah Beekler and director of photography Autumn Derald Arkapar. But first, actor Angela Bassett. My name is Tanaasi Coates, and this is Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. Angela Bassett has seen a lot in her career. She shifted from iconic role to iconic role, from Tina Turner to Betty Shabazz, twice actually, with Grace and a Plum. But she'd never been on a set quite like this one, where reality, in the form of Chadwick Boseman's death, met art in the form of King T'Challa's passing. As she once again graced the screen as a regal matriarch Ramonda, I wanted to know how she managed the transition, how it informed her performance, how she mourned both on camera and off, and what she felt returning this time, not merely as the mother of a king, but as a queen in her own right. I guess it's like bittersweet in a way, because you know why now you're not just queen mother, but queen, you know why you're in this position, but also you are queen and the excitement (laughs) as an actress, you know, as a woman of a certain (laughs) vintage. (laughs) You're like, ooh, okay, you know, as an opportunity. When you're ready, it's like, oh, this is good and this is juicy. Oh, you long for these kind of moments, you know, and these kind of roles. I hadn't read any of the earlier script. I hear maybe there were about five different iterations of it before we landed where we are. But yeah, you that that duality, the duality of life, uh-huh. the bitter and the sweet, uh-huh. you know. Uh-huh. How'd you get the queen? When you think about the story and you're looking at the script, okay, it may be, you know, it's Marvel, it's based on comic book, all of that. But it is a mother. Uh-huh. It is a queen. I understand mother. (laughs) I had to get to queen. You know, how does she hold herself? You know, just ground yourself in that which you understand. Motherhood and love. Because I think that's, you know, that's what will translate. You know, I I give a lot of credit to Ruth Carter and the costumes that she placed to me. Very different, you know, and how it feels to dress in these garments and with this headdress and these set pieces. And even more so in Wakanda, she really stepped it up from the first one. And then to enter the space and to look around and to, to really gaze at it and to wonder about it. And to call it home and to make it home. There's, there's, a, there's a moment in the film, I just keep thinking about, mm-hmm. 
where you say, and I'm not going to try to quote you because I'm going to mangle it, but basically the end part of the quote is my entire family is gone. It feels almost like you're pushing out of the film and into reality because obviously we're thinking about Chad in that particular moment. And then we're thinking about the fictional aspect of what the story is. Exactly. What were you thinking when you said that? Like, what were you pulling from? Were you thinking of Chad or what was it? Yeah, absolutely. I was it, 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 very insightful, both of those things. Of course, Chad. And I remember coming to the um, throne room on the first day. And I literally had to sit in the place where he sat on the throne. And I had to get used to that. And what would that feel like as a mother? And why am I as an actress here? And can I feel, feel this moment, feel these shoes? And the entire throne room has the Dora Milaje up and around and all the elders sitting around. And you just think about, this is a great weight for this woman. And this woman has to lead this nation. Mm-hmm. This Black woman has to lead this African nation. Yeah, it's, you know, you think about the the responsibility to me, Angela, the actress, on this throne in this moment. And then you look around and it's so as if the country or the people, there were really people, there was it's a beautiful space and they're waiting for leadership. And as the first day on set, they are waiting mm. as actors for leadership, mm. how to be, because we all miss our dear brother. But now you, Angela, are driving this scene. Mm. And then also, in addition to that, there's this sort of theatricality. So it was a moment of feeling, you know, usually they say less is more, you know, on film. But in this moment, it felt very theatrical as if I were on the stage, a stage. So it was okay to express in in a big way, in a deep way, um, these feelings and to really go for it and more being best, I hoped. I have given everything. Let me die saving my country and that throne. Allow me to make this right. Make it right. I do not know if my daughter is alive or dead. Perhaps we are being too hasty. Mm. She raised a spear against her own husband for Wakanda. Where is her treacherous husband now? But in a place where she can visit, if she wished, mine. It's with the ancestors. I am queen of the most powerful nation in the world, and my entire family is gone. Have I not given everything? It's a killer moment. It, it really, I mean, the performance in total, but that, that moment specifically is the one that, that really sticks with me. Mm. Right, because she's lost her husband and her son and her daughter. 360 degrees of of loss she's going through. So there might be a bit of anger. (laughs) Yeah, no, that makes sense. And I I think as viewers, Mm -hmm. what we also bring to it is, even even though this is Wakanda, I'll say as this viewer, you understand how perilous a concept family has been for Black people. And so... I understand that 
These are black people in Africa, not necessarily African-Americans who went through the slave trade, et cetera. But nevertheless, the way that the loss of, you know, a son, the loss of a husband, and what looks like at that moment, the loss of the daughter is just, just so huge. You can feel it. Like, you can really, really, really feel it. You said something earlier that I wanted to go back to. Obviously, your queen mother, Ramonda, in the first Black Panther film, and here in Wakanda forever, and you talked about leadership. And I wonder if you felt that sense of, or that need, that seniority, and let me just throw something in here, that maternal need to lead in this film. Of course, yeah. I I, I feel it. You know, every time I step upon the stage in whatever capacity, whether it's lead or in a supporting capacity, is always an opportunity to exhibit your craft, your professionalism, your experience. All of that is an opportunity to lead because people are always watching you. You know, it's the song where somebody's always watching you. But I take it, I love the craft. I take it very seriously. And there are moments that have like great deal of fun in it. And there are moments where we we just have to focus and all the different aspects have to come together to try to be on one accord, to attempt to be on one accord to get to that finish line. Because we want to tell the same story in the best way possible. You know, we have to look toward our leader, our director, our able-bodied director in Ryan, of course, but sometimes it's not the director. Sometimes it's that actor in that first seat that you look toward also. Like, who's steering this ship? And are we going to reach our destination? And we had that leader in Chad and how he conducted himself, his professionalism, his readiness, his competence, his, his excellence, his talent, his availability, his preparedness, all that was on display. If you looked at him, ah, oh, it showed you how you ought to hold and what way you ought to hold yourself. I attempt to do that um, for others and for myself as well. Yeah, when you get an opportunity to pull from a real place and you real, really have an opportunity to reach out of that screen and pull at someone else's heart and imagination, that's what you hope to do every time you step up to the plate. And sometimes you have the, the text, the words, the opportunity to really do that, to really do that. And with Wakanda, we do. A lot of that, it has to do with the reality of our moment, but also I think, I, I know with Ryan as director, he surrounds himself with strong women, you know? The voices, the characters are not something so far from him. So it's in the words, it's in the story, it's in the direction, it's in those who are surrounding, you know, and nobody will go to bat for you like your mama, <laughs> you know? So whether it's Autumn, our amazing director of photography who filmed this movie, or Ruth with these costumes, I don't know how she did it. When you see the the specificity mm-hmm. within the various tribes and Hannah, the specificity in the detail of each and every set, even down to the the lingua, the language, the script, 
that you see written here and there on the ship or in the throne room. And, and of course, it's made mention what people have seen on the uh, the side of the building as we are, you know, laying our, laying our dear brother to rest. One of the most striking scenes in Wakanda forever hits us very early. And again, we find ourselves at the intersection of myth and reality. We see T'Challa's home going. Everyone is in white. There's drumming and dancing and a coffin carried by the door of Malaje. And then everything slows down. The music breaks and you see a troop of dancers almost frozen in time. Above, a mural with the face of Chadwick Boseman appears. Next to it, an inscription in Wakandan reads, the panther king forever lives in us and rests with the ancestors. The ceremony ends with T'Challa literally ascending and leaving us in the wake of his passing. That scene is the result of the hard work of the entire Wakanda Forever crew. But it owes a lot to production designer Hannah Beekler and director of photography Autumn Derald Arkapar. It was Hannah who laid the foundation for Wakanda in Black Panther. In fact, Hannah has worked with Ryan Coogler on all of his films since Fruitvale Station. Autumn, for her part, was working with Ryan for the first time. But having lensed the Marvel television series Loki, she had some sense of the MCU's grammar. Still for both, Wakanda Forever was a different beast. Like everyone else, they were in mourning. And from it, they had to make art. It's a pleasure to be here with both of you, Autumn and uh, Hannah. Autumn, had you ever met Chad in any other capacity? Did you guys ever cross paths? No, we didn't, actually. Okay. I, th- I, I interviewed for some projects he was on, but I'd never met him. To come on to Wakanda Forever was to come on to a family in mourning, in very, very real mourning, while at the same time making a film that was suffused with mourning. I'm wondering how it was for you to come into that. Had you worked on a project like this? Had you seen a situation like this before? What what was it like? I don't think I'll ever work on a project this unique. I think because he was such an amazing person and they had such a great experience on the first one, like all the heads of department are very close. They're all really tight-knit group. They were always celebrating him in the happiest way, like telling stories about him or wanting to do a great job for him. So I always felt like that part of it, as far as mourning, was in a happy place. And even the scenes that celebrated family mourning over the character were done in a beautiful way where it was like remembering how good of a person he was and that energy that he brought to set. Ryan always speaks of how 
he made him a better director and a better person. So when someone talks about someone like that, it's very impactful. So I'm coming on, you know, inserting myself into this new group and wanting to pay respect, but also to do good for the new people because um, they already have something built. They've told this story before for the first time. They had to create this from scratch, and now I'm coming in and we're telling kind of a, a new part of it. But the energy was always lovely, and, you know, we have some very impactful scenes where I got emotional, but in a good way because I think everyone was— Which ones? Which ones? Oh, the end for sure. And then when Lupita right, in Bashanga Squares, Lupita's speaking to um, Okoye when she's talking about right. him— and you could see, like, on the day when we were shooting it, mm-hmm. she was actually talking about him as well. Like, that's how I felt about it. Cause about it just, Chad, about T'Challa Yeah, like, they're yeah. both kind of similar. I got emotional. It just felt like a heavy, a heavy thing to do good for everyone that had known him prior. After Thanos' attack, when you left without saying a word, it hurt. I regret not being there with all of you. It was not easy. He was king and Black Panther to everyone. But to me... He was everything. My T'Challa. Hannah, how did you find out Chad had passed? And how did you process, mourn, and work all at the same time? I got a phone call. Someone had called me. I can't even really remember. I just remember, like, this isn't real. Like, I, you know, when someone tells you that, you kind of go through a, like, okay, th- this isn't, I don't know, because I've been through this before, and I was like, okay, this isn't real. So there was a little bit of denial, and then I kind of got more phone calls and understood what had happened, and that's how I found out that he had passed. And it was just all I could do at that moment, I think, was really think about Ryan, because I just wanted to make sure he was okay, and I wanted to make—I knew that that this—and everyone, it was going to be incredibly hard to move forward. I guess, for me, it was making— people comfortable in their grieving, if that makes sense, but also the celebration of him. And I wanted to infuse everything with Chadwick's memory, paying tribute to him and paying tribute to the character that changed film in a lot of ways, changed how we thought about what its potential is in the world and what it means to young people when they see these things. So I wanted to make sure that he he was the, always there in my in the way that I knew how. So, you know, in the details, in the words, in the structures, in the colors, in the everything. And I think that that's how I kind of got through it a lot, right? I think that's sort of how I made sure that he was still there and will always be there because film is forever. Again, the celebration of him and a lot like how we celebrate New Orleans when we second line, which oftentimes people think like, oh, it's a fun second line and it's actually um, a jazz funeral. It's a grief, but it's also a joy of having known someone, of having 
seen the, the impact their lives have had. And I think that for a lot of Black people in the United States and in the diaspora and on the continent, that is, as I was researching how people grieved their loved ones within the diaspora all over the world, I kind of found that we all kind of have that in our DNA, that same way of passing someone on to the ancestors. North Triangle, I think, is where it really got me, was seeing everybody come down in white and hearing the music and seeing the celebration of life and and how hard it was for the actors, not just in the scene, but thinking about Chadwick is when I kind of had my little moment, had my breakdown a little bit of like, this is really real now. It's this scene I think about where various, you know, foreign powers, I think it's the French or whatever, trying to get Wakanda's vibranium mm. and they go into the safe and out come the Dora Malache. And mm. my recollection is that they kind of come out of like shadow almost. Mm. So chiaroscuro is like when you use a lot of shadow in a painting, a lot of the old masters would use it and it has like this effect of just contrast because a lot of times they would use these like colors that, that really, really pop. But they kind of just, you know, sort of come out of this shadow and it's like this real, like, aw shit moment. So one of the things I'm always interested in is there are these moments in the film where it's like, I have to convey badassery. Hmm. You know what I mean? But what does that mean to you technically? Well, number one, that set was fun. Like, I remember when we talked about that set and Hannah knows this, she's smiling, because I'm big on texture and light, right? So she she would come in, she'd build something, and she'd be like, I know you're going to like this. You know, she'd come over and talk to me. She's like, Autumn's going to like this, and we let's give her a ceiling, or she's going <laughs> to love the wall texture, and let's put holes in the windows, you know? We have so much action in that set, but why I feel like that scene looks so amazing is because there's so much going on there, right? Not just in the space, but the people in that space. And when you walk into a space as an actor, and you're being given something interesting and powerful, and the structure's made out of stone, and that's powerful, and then there's texture in the wall, and there's levels and stuff, they get excited, and then I get excited, and then, you know, you, you have that lighting. So Ryan, actually, he asked for that specifically. He wanted them to come out of the darkness there. So it was just making sure that on the day, giving him a type of shaping of light so they could actually do that in camera and walk out, and then we darkened a little bit behind them to make it more dramatic. But yeah, he's very specific, like, with certain moments that he wants certain things to happen with camera. So you either know about him ahead of time or you're setting yourself up for just like, you know, you want to make sure on the day you can give him what he wants. And when he's in the moment and he can see people in the space that he can ask for something and you can give that quickly with the tools that you have in the set. We obviously have a... um a new uh, antagonist in the film in, in the form of Namor. But this is a very different Namor. This is not the, the Namor that I, you know, grew up certainly reading about. He's a very, very different mythos. Uh, he is, you know, rooted in the mythos of the indigenous peoples of the Americas, Mesoamerica specifically. There is certainly elements of, of, of struggle, of genocide, of enslavement. 
that have now become a part of his origin. I was excited about this because I thought Ryan opened up the mythos by doing this, that he actually made the story more universalized. And, you know, when you usually hear that word, you think white people, but he actually did it in another way. What I'm trying to get to is how you guys created Telecon, like how, how you, you know, drew from all of the variety of influences. How many books did you read? Who did you talk to? What did you do? Because it feels so real, man. And it feels respectful. It feels reverent. It doesn't feel dashed off, like insert indigenous culture here. It feels like you guys really did your homework. And so I just, you know, I'm, I'm fascinated about how that was done. Anna. I mean, it was a lot. <laughs> yeah. That's Hannah's specialty. I'm going to let her take that one. I mean, it, it ended with a 400-page telecom Bible. <laughs> and just like the last time was Wakandan Bible. And so I did it again. And we found a wonderful expert, Dr. Gerardo Aldana. I can't even thank him enough. And my first conversation with him, I said, who am I to be able to do this? I'm not of the culture. I'm really nervous about this. And it's just time to study. I mean, like we'd be on Zoom and he'd be on his board in his classroom, Mm -hmm. you know, teaching us about reading hieroglyphs, talking to us about all the proper history of Maya. The level of research, I think, was deeper than what I did with Wakanda. There was a certain feeling, even though I'm American, I'm not African, but I understood a certain thing, right? That's my people still. It's in my DNA. And so I did not have that here, and I needed to do three times as much to make sure that I was at least hitting the most basic of things and making sure that I was doing right by this culture and by the people that inspired Talakan. So I needed to understand going back to 900 AD, mm. Mm. where they started and why. Mm. And from 900 AD in Chiapas, Mexico, after the death of Pakal, a group of people migrated to the lowlands. That would be Tulum. And they then were there until the Spanish came. At that point, and I believe it was 1792, is when they went into the water. So we tracked them for 200 years in the water mm. until they ended up in the Puerto Rican Trench. And mm. they were in the Howdall Zone, which is about 12,000 feet down. So that's where we placed them. That's where they went. We tracked pretty much everything about them because the people in Palenque in Chiapas were considered the water people of Maya because they contended with Agua Azul, which is this beautiful blue river that runs through Palenque at that time. So they were able to make rubber so they could have sort of waders, if you will, at that time. And so again, you're talking 900 AD and before. And so we just kept going and going. I needed to know everything. And then from that moment, we started their timeline. From the minute they go into the water, we started their timeline. And I'd sit with Ryan and I'd go through it with him. And here's how I think they got here. And here's why they think they did. Then I did a 300-year look at their population growth around the entire ocean. And then I did a 200-year look of the evolution of their architecture. And then we did a 200-year look at the evolution of their technology based in the ocean. It's incredible. It's incredible. Every piece of painting that you see in the uh, memorabilia room with Namor 
is a story told about him becoming a king or Ku'u'ahau of Talakan. And Ku'u'ahau is one with the loudest voice and not necessarily a king. Um, he's also Kukakan. Who are you? I have many names. My people call me Ahkukunkan. But my enemies call me Namor. Ryan has this great way when it comes to villains of giving them many names, especially when you're talking about indigenous people, because one way I think he felt that they kind of keep you in a place is they never let you settle with the name. That's why Killmonger had so many names. And that's why Namor has so many names as well. But to his people who's Kukakan or Kauahau. So we put the sun and the moon on the doors of his throne room. So we tell the story of the moon and the sun. We tell the story of the establishment of Talakan, all in hieroglyphs which we can now all read, <laughs> and, um, and as well as in his memorabilia room, which you'll see the spirit god as well in there that he talks about a little bit. We designed the mural tree of the Calabash in that story. So, I mean, it goes so deep of the three realms of the underworld, the middle realm, the upper realm, which Namor is part of all three of them because he can breathe underwater, he can walk on land, and he can fly in the sky. So he's part of all three of the, the, the Maya realms. And I just didn't stop ever because it was so important to me that when, just as I wanted a young African-American or a young Black girl or boy that in throughout the diaspora to look at the first Black Panther and feel a sense of pride before we learn about pain. I'm I'm really a bit advocate of teaching our children pride before they learn about pain. There's plenty of time for that. I wanted the same for any child of Mexico, any Latino child to understand boy and girl and be proud of the beauty of that culture that went through a lot of the destruction that the African culture did when it came to the United States or was you know, trafficked here to the United States. So I um, took that really personally, and it was a heavy, heavy responsibility and weight. It just was really serious to me that this was right and that we weren't appropriating or mistelling the story. And I wanted to break down the truth. I wanted to get to it, which nobody really knows, and then use my knowledge to create something that was spurred from that which was Talakan as far as like what you see in the design and the uh, environment. Yeah, no, you know what? I, I think though, I think it's really, really instructive because again, like there's always this debate about who can say what and um, there's this sense that got to be from a culture to write. But I, I think more than anything, what people want is they, they, they want to feel respected. Given the fact that so much of the film is is taken up by this, you know, magnificent protagonist, Namor and, and, and his kingdom, can you guys just talk a little bit about the technical aspect of, of shooting? Because we're made to feel like when we're underwater, that we're actually underwater. Mm. Were you underwater? <laughs> um, and if not, how, how did you make it feel like, you know, we were underwater? On a base level, there was a decision made, which all of us were a part of, to number one, make all of the water scenes feel like they were real, right? Because we're used to seeing movies where people are underwater and it's hard to make something look real when people are talking underwater because that's not natural, right? But to approach it in a way that it feels like, you know, Hannah's 
Bible, right, that we have and all of this design underwater and this culture underwater, you want to be able to see it. But when you're in the depths of the ocean that deep, light sources have to come from a real place. So all these elements were very important. It was like, how do you light the deep ocean? How do you show a city, a culture? How do you make it feel real? These people are also talking underwater. How do you do that? So it's this very much a relationship between VFX, production design, obviously Ryan and I discussing how we're going to shoot it. What do we need from Hannah as far as what sets are we putting in water? What sets are out of water in um, dry sets in a stage? So the idea came up to shoot everything that we could possibly do underwater in a tank so that we could give Weta, who's the VFX company that's doing those underwater sequences, give them some type of reference for light and uh, reference for how hair, how Ruth's costumes react underwater, Hannah's colors, her sets, textures, and you know different materials she wants to use underwater. So at the end of the day, we shot as much as we could underwater, which you, know, you see in the trailer, you see him descending from the Satsun and he goes into this beautiful throne. So we shot that underwater. He's on wires and we shoot that. So there's a reference underwater camera housing. You know, we light it so it looks good. And then we take that and we also put it on a stage. And we had a backdrop that was printed, right, Hannah, that had the set. Same kind of giving us the color of his throne room. And we would shoot that dry. So then he was suspended in a dry environment and we would shoot it two times. It was kind of this idea so that we could have a great reference for how it feels in, you know, the real underwater world. And then also in the dry world because he's speaking, you know. And obviously people can't stay underwater for too long, safety, and just a lot of people aren't the best swimmers. So that was a thought process, and it looks amazing. I think it's a, kind of a groundbreaking process because it feels real, and everybody's work that went into it shines, and it's a testament to kind of how everyone, and, and Ryan just, you know, making everyone remember that it should feel real, it should feel textural, and we should um, pay homage to this culture. So when I, I texted Ryan earlier today and I told him that I was going to interview both of you, I told him I was going to get the dirt um, and I was going to, uh, <laughs> I believe I told him I, wa- I wanted to hear about how he was walking around the set in a fur with no shirt on and chains. <laughs> uh, so I was going to get all the, all of the stories, you know what I mean? His, his craziness. <laughs> but without you, obviously these worlds look very, very different, right? And you having been, you particularly had having been with Ryan, you know, since Fruitvale, what was the experience like before and what came in the 10 years after? I mean, before when I was coming up and coming into production design, I oftentimes was the only woman as a department head, as a, as a crew member on a, mm-hmm. any given film, and most certainly always the only Black person male or female, that was in a lead role, if you will, a department head role. I uh, most certainly never worked with a woman production designer as I was coming up in this industry before. Mm. So, you know, when you start getting into those positions, you start challenging the sort of dimensions of power, right? And there's often pushback to that. So you kind of struggle to who are you going to be in this industry and how do you then be diplomatic, get your vision heard, be taken seriously and, you know, convince people that you know your craft. My whole thing was keeping my head down and my mouth shut and just moving forward at all costs. And so I met Ryan and I was like, who's this young kid, first of all? (laughs) Mm -hmm. 
But um, also, there was never a moment where he didn't think I could just do it. Like, he never questioned my ability. And that was new. I've always been questioned. There was never a moment where he didn't ask my opinion. That was new. I usually had to shout it. And as I started being treated in a manner that everyone should be treated or is treated, that doesn't look like me, that is not me, I realized that I don't have to have a wall. And then my creativity came through. I unlocked something. And I think what I did over time was adopted how he saw me. I adopted the way he saw me. I started seeing myself. And at that point, I actually saw someone who was capable and who had a vision and who could make a statement, who could listen, who could, you know, all the things that I think I questioned about myself before as a creative. He still has his own perspective on things, and he's not perfect, and we don't always agree. (laughs) (laughs) But he's certainly someone who will always be there and nothing will ever change that. And it took me a long time to understand that bit of it. I am a better person since I met Ryan and I'm a better filmmaker. Autumn, what did you feel in what she was just saying? What what sounded familiar? She has to deal with so much extraneous stuff as a filmmaker, as a Black woman, because Production design comes on way before I come on, right? I'm coming on for a little bit of prep and then we're shooting. But sometimes you're getting bogged down by all the stress and all the um, things that happen to get things done for your director, to get things done for the story in such a big environment and such a long shoot that having a person like Ryan there to believe in you and to make you feel like you can do anything, honestly, like creatively and lead your team properly. And I think it's important to mention that we're females because, you know, certain males that we've worked with in the past unfortunately haven't done that for me. And to see someone, especially a person of color, everybody in our heads of department were people of color. It's groundbreaking to look around and see people that look like you and are empowering you and supporting you. It felt really good. So... I think when you see the film, you see that empowerment within the creativity that he allowed us to have on this. Black Panther and Wakanda forever mark moments in time for me. The kind of visual spectacle and mythical storytelling that I always dreamed would expand to include those of us who've long been stereotyped, marginalized, or excluded from Hollywood epics. But Wakanda Forever left me with questions. How did they do it? How did the spectacle work? How was the myth constructed? On the next episode, we'll hear more of the cast and crew discuss how they moved the story of the Black Panther forward, including costume designer Ruthie Carter. It was definitely very much like starting Malcolm X, knowing that you were doing a film that was going to be very important to the culture, very important to you. Composer Ludwig Göransson. And as soon as I put in this song for that scene when he's showing Shuri the underwater world, it's like, it fit in perfectly like a glove. And actor Dominique Thorne. I think, definitely feel like a little bit of a badass, like, oh, shit. 
Okay. I did this. All right. <laughs> I'll be back next week with another chapter of Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast. If you like the show, be sure to follow, rate, and review it on your favorite podcast app. And tell your friends and loved ones to do the same. Learn more about our journey at ProximityMedia.com and follow at ProximityMedia, at Marvel, and at Marvel Studios on Twitter and Instagram. Wakanda Forever, the official Black Panther podcast, is a production of Proximity Media in collaboration with Marvel Studios and Marvel Entertainment. The series is written and hosted by me, ta Coates, and produced by Paul Amardo. Executive producers are Ryan Coogler, Zinzi Coogler, Sev Ohanian, and Paul Amardo. The film score is composed by Ludwig Gorenson. James Kim is our story editor. Our audio editors are Cameron Kell and Cedric Wilson. Sound design and additional music is by Pat Masidi Miller. Lauren Newson is our audio engineer. Paulina Cherisova is our production assistant. Special thanks to Octavia Rideout, Adam Cole, Susan Mueller, Lydia Ward, Courtney Archard, Natalie Mead, and the Proximity Media team. The character of the Black Panther was created by Stan Lee and Jack Kirby. Black Panther Wakanda Forever is co-written and directed by Ryan Coogler. It is produced by Kevin Feige and Nate Moore and streaming only on Disney+. I'm Ta-Nehisi Coates. Thanks for listening. I'll meet you back here next week.